Welcome to episode three of the Climate History Podcast, the official podcast of the Climate History Network and historicalclimatology.com. I am Professor Dagmar de Groot of Georgetown University. In our last episode, I announced that we won a substantial Research Infrastructure Award from Georgetown University. We've already used part of that award to transform and improve our online presence. You can now visit our completely redesigned website at climatehistory.net. In future months and years, we'll add new functions to our website and make it one of the web's leading resources on climate change. We'll also continue to expand and enhance historicalclimatology.com, which now receives about 200,000 hits per year. I'm delighted to announce that since our last episode, we won another major award, this one from the Georgetown Environment Initiative. This latest award will let us host three climate history workshops at Georgetown, as well as a major conference dedicated to establishing relationships between climate change and conflict. More importantly still, this gives us an institutional home at Georgetown, and we've been looking for an institutional home for some years now. So we're really growing by leaps and bounds. And it's therefore fitting that this third episode of our podcast also takes a bit of a leap from environmental history into another discipline, archaeology. Joining us today are two of the leading professors in the archaeology and anthropology of the Arctic and the subarctic. Dr. Thomas McGovern is a professor of anthropology at Hunter College at the City University of New York. He's associate director of the CUNY Human Ecodynamics Research Center. He has extraordinary field experience, notably in Greenland, and a remarkable record of awards and fellowships. He has many dozens of fascinating publications, including on the rise and fall of the Norse in the far north. Dr. George Hambrecht is a professor of anthropology at the University of Maryland College Park. He studies the historical and zooarchaeology of Iceland and the broader subarctic and even the Arctic in the North Atlantic. And he explores interactions between the political, environmental, and biological dimensions of the transformative early modern period. He also helps lead teams of interdisciplinary researchers and projects that have won some really big awards from the National Science Foundation. Professor McGovern, Professor Hambrecht, thank you so much for joining me today. A real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So when most people think of archaeology, even our very informed listeners, they probably think of human evolution, maybe, or of, you know, the great classical civilizations, but I imagine that few of them would think of the far north. So what kind of work do archaeologists do in the Arctic and the subarctic, and, and why is this work so important for us today? It's a lot of fun because it's a really interesting place to work where you can really examine the interaction of humans and landscape and climate in, in ways you can't always do elsewhere. Um, it's sort of an overstatement. It's a little hackney to talk about the Arctic as being entirely marginal because actually some of the highest areas of productivity of the planet are in the far north. But mm -hmm. one thing that the north has going for it, if you're an archaeologist interested in long-term interactions between people and climate and place, is it tends to be often the last settled place. 
you know, Iceland, Greenland, the high Arctic, these tend to be places that are late in human history, prehistory. And that gives you a better chance to investigate that key interaction, that key threshold between pre-human and first human impacts. And that's really something valuable, which you can't easily do in places like Africa, where we've been we evolved, or yeah. places like the middle latitudes, where we hear really Pleistocene times, but not before. Mm. The archaeology of, of, for instance, of European interaction with the subarctic and Arctic is, is, is interesting because uh, I mean, one way to look at it is, uh, for instance, Iceland or, or even parts of southern Greenland are the northernmost limit where you can sustain a sort of Eurasian African lifestyle with, with domestic animals, maybe with uh, domestic plants. If you go any farther north, you basically have to go hunter-gatherer. You basically have to go Inuit or, or, or you know, become truly high Arctic adapted. And because of changes in the climate over the last you know, thousand years for the North Atlantic, or I guess even tens of thousands of years for Siberia, you, you have situations where that border moves. Mm. And so we can see how people, in our case, Europeans, generally Scandinavians, dealt with changes in climate that, that had significant impacts on the way they lived. So it's a great laboratory for watching people dealing with climate impacts, which, of mm. course, nowadays is, is, is an is a area of study of great relevance to what we're moving into. Yeah, yeah. So what to you... Is the most, I mean, this is a difficult question, but is, is the most fascinating thing that you've studied in the far north? Oh, it's all fun. <laughs> the, uh, I think the, for me at least, it goes back to my dissertation work in Greenland. Um, this classic case of what happened to North Greenlanders. Uh, was it something exceptional? Is this just something that happens a lot? People go extinct, small communities end. Um, I think this also has been a mystery that is only a mystery because it's um, blonde people become extinct in the high <laughs> Arctic. Uh, and I think that this, if you broaden out the investigation, turns out to be a pattern which is, is quite widespread. Small communities have become extinct in the past and in the near present in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, the easy answer about why, which is sort of what we told Jared Diamond uh, 10 years ago or more, is that they were kind of unaware, ignorant of their surroundings. They applied the wrong models to the Arctic. Um, basically, they weren't smart. They screwed up. They died. Mm. This, we're recognizing, is way too simple and actually um, doesn't at all capture the complexity of the adaptation, the success of their subsistence. And now we recognize that these folks successfully responded to genuine threshold crossing climate change in the mid-13th century and bought themselves another century of survival. So that's success in many standpoints. The fact that in the end, despite being actually pretty well adapted, they all died anyway, uh, changes the story and I think arguably makes it a lot more scary. Yeah. So North Greenland remains this really interesting case that you can pull all sorts of interesting things out of. We don't have it all figured out yet, and the story has changed in my own lifetime uh, fairly dramatically, uh, and it, it stays pretty exciting, so that's, that's a lot of fun. But there's many other stories for the North Atlantic as well, which are also interesting, relevant, cool. So what do we think happened to the Norse? Well, it's a complicated thing, as usual. It's conjunctions. Hmm. Things coming together. I mean... One thing you can see, it was always a small community. We're now looking at probably an estimate of somewhere two to 3,000 people at most. So it's as small as the North and North Atlantic Islands, to give you some scale. Iceland normally is assumed to have had a medieval population around 50,000. It may have been as high as 80. 
Uh, the fairways normally are assumed to be around 5,000, so the Greenland is really small. Hmm. We're also recognizing that Norse Greenland, right from the beginning, was a very considerable degree about walrus hunting, about producing essentially inedible products, ivory and ship's line, to send back to Europe. And that started back in the, the Viking Age, so it wasn't the product of the early modern period. Uh, in the later period, in the 1200s, we do see the impact, long-term, long-range impact of the Pax Mongolica proto-medieval world system. In Iceland, they shift over and do a lot of fish. They do a lot of woolens. In Greenland, they stick with the old walrus hunt. So mm. you can see this is a diverging pathway. Greenland, of course, is more Arctic. It is more heavily impacted by any climate change than Iceland's going to be. Um, so certainly you can always see them as being more vulnerable. Plus, in Greenland, you have a cultural contact situation, probably also starting around 1200, where the ancestors of the modern Greenlandic Inuit are coming in. These are the Thule people who do this migration, which winds up in Greenland by 1200. We don't know all the details of Norse-Thule interaction. But we do know that at the end of the day, the Thule were there and the Norse weren't. Mm. And that also is what happened in Arctic Canada, where the Thule people interacted with the Paleo-Eskimo group, the Dorset, and again replaced them. So we do have a situation where it's probably way too simple to see this as some sort of an invading horde or something like that, but certainly the cultural interactions are part of the story. The Greenlanders had that problem, the Icelanders didn't. Yeah. So I think that there's a, a bunch of things to think about there. And also the timing of the different climate changes. We can see very clearly from both the stable isotopes of human bodies and also the animal bones coming out of their middens that face the climate shock of the 1250s, these folks become much more maritime, more seal hunting. And at the same time, their settlements... And these are the Norse. These are the Norse Greenlanders. Yeah. And at the same time, their settlements contract inland into the inner fjords and work mm. by our good friends from Denmark and Greenland really underlined that in the last few years. So paradoxically, as they're getting more maritime adapted, their home base is moving further from the sea. And that means more time in boats, more exposure to all sorts of marine problems. And that's about 1424, 1425. There's a flip over in maritime circulation, which has the outcome of much more severe storminess in the mm. Atlantic. And our good friend Andy Dugmore has talked about this a bit. And what you're seeing here is essentially climate change interacting with long-term environmental knowledge, which we talk about as LTK, local and traditional knowledge, especially around seafaring. You know, what's safe? What can you get away with? You know, what kinds of climate risk, weather risks, seafaring risks are reasonable to take and what aren't? And that's the real issue there. So we're suspecting what may be happening. It's, of course, it's multi-stranded. It was always a small community. There is you no know, contact issue. There's less contact with the earth. There's climate change. But there's also this radical increase in vulnerability, which has been created by their very success in pumping up their maritime adaptation. So you could argue the success they have in getting through the first climate shock makes them that much more vulnerable to the second one, which I think, again, suggests that this particular case study is way more complex than they just screwed up and died. Yeah. Or, a society that chose to fail. And I think if you think about this as an analogy to modern society, it's also a lot scarier. Yeah. So Jared Diamond was wrong, or a little well, bit overly simplistic. Well, I think it's the case where he was. right he at was. the time. Yeah. He was right okay. at the time, and I think it's good to realize that he talked to us quite a lot in the field, yeah. and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not part of the Jared Diamond bashing industry. 
Um, we love you, Jared. It's really much more that uh, the, the, he got the story that we told him ten years ago. Yeah, and that story has changed a lot thanks to you know American and other tax dollars at work. Um, and we have learned a lot more. So the new perspective that we have on understanding these really interesting and very complicated interactions of people and time and place uh, happening at different levels and variables moving at different speeds, um, it's a tough story to unravel sometimes, but also really fascinating. And it gets more fascinating with time. George, you gave a, just a fascinating talk about this at uh, Georgetown pretty recently. Um, and, and one of the things that fascinated me most is, is that you said that it wasn't necessarily cooling that uh, hampered Norse subsistence strategies in uh, Greenland and Iceland, but it was the variability of climate in the 14th century, I believe, right? That's been something that's come about due to our archaeological work, our zooarchaeological work, you know, the, the archaeology of animal bones, but also with a lot of, uh, with, with actually absolutely crucial help from uh, our geoarchaeological collaborators who really look at soils as an artifact, just as we look at animal bones as an artifact. These people look at soils as an artifact, as well as climatologists, as well as uh, um, geographers. And a lot of data sets came together to, to, to especially in Iceland, uh, where Iceland experienced a very, very significant, some almost close to catastrophic uh, soil loss mm. um, in the Middle Ages. And much of our of, of, of our of our of our work has come down to this idea that the problem wasn't that say in the little ice age it was getting colder and colder and colder. Uh, if you're a farmer and you're planning ahead, and let's say the trend over a few generations is colder and colder and colder, you can plan for that. The real enemy of forethought of planning is 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 variability, mm-hmm. and if things become unpredictable, then the LTK that Tom is just talking about that local traditional knowledge, that environmental, the traditional environmental knowledge, is invalidated. So any your tool set of memories you would use to plan for how much grass do I grow, how many animals do I keep, how much grass do I store, how many animals do I try to get through the winter time, is invalidated if you if you, if the probability of what you think is going to happen is very very low. So yeah, variability and and a lot of climate study these days is showing that spikes in climate variability are usually uh, are what are what what we is in our human experience are more likely to see a lot of these trends really sort of lie outside of the uh, of the normal window of human experience i would say except for this idea of variability right okay although trends of course can make certain kinds of variability more likely right or is that not a good way of thinking about it mm, sure i mean it's interesting when we discuss, say, like the Little Ice Age in in Iceland. You can see the trends, and then if you look within the trend, you can see these these areas of, of, of great variability. I, I guess a, a better example would be it's really the 13th century when you see that first first sort of spike in variability up on the north uh, North Atlantic that we think was really uh, important both for Iceland and for Greenland. And then there's another spike later, I believe it's more like the 14th 15th century, which again has major uh, impacts on Greenland and on Iceland. Mm. So I guess I would just say that within those trends, you have to look for episodes of, uh, it, a, a trend is important, but I suppose just as important as looking within the sort of frame of human experience, say, you know, five, 10, 15 years, as opposed to century or, 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 or millennial. Uh, how does that trend fit into the human experience? Yeah, you know, at the it, local level. Yeah, at the local level, exactly. That's the local is really important. As you're zooming on the local level, yeah and local temporal level. This is also where 
things like the Little Ice Age become a little irrelevant. And mm-hmm. we work with climatologists who hate the term Little Ice Age mm-hmm. because they are thinking that this is giving you the sense every day was cold, yeah. every day was miserable. And in fact, it's tremendously variable. And the medieval warm period, again, in quotes, before then wasn't all warm either. Uh, so, I mean, some of the people we work with are very adamant that we're seeing is, is periods of variability on many different scales and seeing how that plays out in local landscape where people live, you know, rather than on hemisphere scale where nobody lives. Um, you know, we get things down to your locality and season by season, which we're now increasingly able to do thanks to our friends in climatology. That shows you a lot of variability, and this gets you closer to the human experience that you were just talking about. I wasn't like to live through that. I mean, nobody really lives through the Little Ice Age, yeah. but people live through periods of cooling and warming and variability. And I think I think we're all really focusing, as George was saying, on the sense that it isn't necessarily the worst year in 800 years that does you in. It could be a string of them, or it could just be the difficulty of planning mm. and how to make the right decisions. So this is probably quite similar to the debate about the term global warming. Yeah. Right? Climate change or global warming. <laughs> but what happened to the Norse in Greenland? Did they, did they really die out? Do we know? Well, there's, 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 a lot of, there's, there's one theory out there that, that I, I think I could speak for most of us that we disagree with is that it has moved. Mm. Um, and I think there's some that that's a very I think that's a pretty problematic idea. The problem is I understand it. Tom could speak to this better. Is that we don't actually uh, no one's actually found the bodies, uh, but we found the abandonment. You know, we have the abandonment layers, and so I mean, it, my best guess, and I think it's sort of the best educated guess, is that they did just die. Mm. They went extinct. Okay. I mean, personally, I really like the concept that they all left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a great idea. It's a nice idea. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I kind of feel sorry for these people, and I, I wish them all the best. Even <laughs> but one of the big problems is, of course, by the 14th century, by the 15th century, when they become abandoned, density of records in Europe is getting pretty high. And if you had had, say, in the 14th century... Density of, of sources. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you're thinking about... A, even a few hundred or a thousand people being evacuated from Greenland in the 1450s, and they land anywhere in Europe, someone's going to notice that. Well, the monastery would have written it down at the very least. And, and think about <laughs> the, the subject of preaching at that point. I mean, on one end of Christendom, the Turks are taking Constantinople. On the other end of Christendom, the heathen are taking over Greenland from the last outpost. I mean, what a sermon. Yeah. And yet nobody gives that sermon. <laughs> also, um, it's very clear that in Europe, nobody knows what happens to them. They think they're still there. Uh, Bishops of Greenland are still appointed by the Pope. They don't ever go, but they're appointed. And even more tellingly, in the 1720s, when the fairly fanatical missionary Hans Eide from Norway is planning to go to Greenland, he's planning to go and find the Greenlanders, the Norse Greenlanders, convert them from Popish idolatry into good Lutheranism. So he reads everything. He goes, consults all of the libraries available to him. He writes what today would be a grant proposal. The king of Denmark <laughs> uh, approves it. They give him money. He goes there expecting to find Norsemen and is terribly disappointed to find only Eskimos. And it's only very reluctantly he turns to Christianizing them. So I think this tells you something, and that, that silence is meaningful. Because even if a few Greenlanders had gotten out, the story would have gotten out. Yeah. People would have known that Greenland is over. And I think one of the pers- most persuasive things that nobody got out was that the war didn't get back. One of the best theories, though, is Gavin Menzies, and that's that the Ming Dynasty fleet <laughs> sailed by and picked them up. So maybe they made it back to China. Who knows? I have to confess, I mentioned that to my students last year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, it's a great theory. It's it's, it's theory. Yes. <laughs> is, is is this also the most fascinating thing that, that you've 
studied in a fire? To what extent have you been uh, involved with this kind of research? Greenland peripherally, but uh, mm. for me, I suppose the, the, the most fascinating sort of, on, on more of a conceptual level, is looking at the way people manipulate and use animals to negotiate uh, uh, changing environments mm. and as a zooarchaeologist we as I said before we look at animals as artifacts and uh, animals as kind of plastic and that you can you can you can breed them you can mold them and, and and what I'm currently really interested in is if we can if we can try to parse out of genetic data uh, environmental pressure versus human pressure mm. and if, if we can do that can we see the relationship between the two would be fascinating and where in Iceland in Iceland yeah in Iceland because yeah. that's, that's where most of my data is mm. um the one specific site I've worked on that probably had the best story, though, was as a graduate student, worked on a site called Hofstadter, which is some of our best, one of the best examples we have out there of pre-Christian Scandinavian pagan activity. Mm. And it involves lopping the heads off of bulls with one swipe of an axe and, and then hanging the head up there and blood pouring. And it's, 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 it's great stuff. It's, it's, it, it was, and it was a classic because it was the last week of the, of the last season of our excavations at this pagan longhouse. And at this point, we just thought it was a big farmhouse. And of course, the last week, a series of skulls are are, are, are exposed who have these interesting cut marks. And then also, uh, some cases don't have horns, look like they were exposed on the outside of the building. There's all these great things coming together to 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 to, pro to produce a, a really interesting portrait of pre-Christian activity. See, this is why I want to go up and do some field work with you guys, because let me tell you, the archive is not quite as exciting. <laughs> a lot oh, yeah. warmer, though. Lord, a lot warmer. You, 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 you don't get dirty in the archive, though, I have to say. So yeah. you almost never have to wear rain gear. Yeah. Yeah, and you're almost never cold. You're not being yeah, attacked yeah, by insects. That's a yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It's, and you're not digging in the mud for weeks. Yeah. <laughs> now this, yeah, it's, it, even, even that moment, I just, I just, we didn't really have that moment in the field. That moment came maybe eight months later in the lab. <laughs> we like, wait a second, look at that. That's something new. You know. So yeah, the, the, there, there are occasional eureka moments in the, in the field, but uh, it's just probably like being in an archive except a little colder. And, yeah. yeah. That's the thing. It really all ends up being the same thing when you... <laughs> well, what was the... So this is actually dovetails nicely into, into a question I was going to ask you guys. What was the most challenging experience that you had in the field? Besides the survey, two thousand seven. Exactly, survey two thousand seven. Yeah, oh. we, we were we were up in Mivatan. Um, Mivatan is a wonderful region. Uh, it's a lake, mm. uh, and, and, it, and the lake the name translates roughly to Blackfly Lake. Mm. And so we were there. We we I'd worked there for many years. Tom has too. Megan Hicks, a colleague of ours, is is, is leading the work up there now because she's glutton for punishment <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful place but the point is you want to work there between the hatches mm. and we were there surveying during one of the hatches and we, we were, were also uh, one of the 200 year highs apparently oh well, <laughs> yeah yeah there was a crew of entomologists down the road who, who told us that but we would drive over the hill and you could see black columns emerging off the lake it was biblical oh, almost, you know like uh, you know fire by night you know was it smoke by day i mean there were these amazing columns coming off there and i've never been it was uh, <laughs> just yeah I was wearing a blue shirt once, and my shirt was black because it was covered with insects. Virtually all the site photos have are almost unusable because there's clouds of black flies for you in the lands. I mean, Icelandic farmers up there are very tough, and they are there to make it think of not not being girly and wearing a head net, you know. But I swear they were wearing head nets. I'm swearing that some of their dogs were wearing head nets too. Oh my It was it was dense. So that was every one of us had a nervous breakdown at some point. Well, I mean, I mean, George and I had to. Provide a good example for the students, but I don't know what you do when you get home. But I, I climbed into the bed and cried like a small child for a few minutes, and then drank heavily. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> yeah, that was rough. 
Oh, man. So, yeah. I mean, otherwise, it's just, you know, it's kind of hard work. It rains a lot and it's blowing a lot. And There's some amazing results, though. We found a site yeah. that our colleague Megan Hicks has been digging for years now, which is an Absolutely. extraordinary site. Called was Scoot. it worth it? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Scoot It was worth it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, that's but true I passion. Sometimes. <laughs> horrible, horrible. True dedication to the field. I, I, I don't know if I could handle that, to if be honest. If we'd known, we probably... We would have rescheduled. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, it was too late then. But, uh, oh yeah. Well, you're you're both members of the North Atlantic Biocultural Organization, NABO, and you're in fact one of the founders, Dr. McGovern of uh, NABO. NABO. NABO or NABO? NABO. Yeah. Either, either pronunciation, <laughs> totally correct. The key here is it's one of those clever acronyms because oh, okay. it stands for North Atlantic Biocultural Organization, but in many Scandinavian languages, it also means neighbor. Oh. So we're being clever here. We're trying to be. And the idea behind it was always trying to be neighborly in the sense mm. of pooling resources that no individual scholar is going to have or no individual research team or arguably even a whole national effort is going to be able to produce because people had different traditions have different specialties and capabilities. So it's been working really well if people from Europe and North America and now elsewhere are coming into this and joining in in, uh, in very cooperative spirit, lots of massively multi-author publications, lots of nurturing That's great. graduate students, um, lots of really good, solid connections across nations. It's been fun. The ongoing um, image which we try to sell about NAVO is the various Land Rovers, none of which we can afford individually. <laughs> but if we pool our resources, we, we can. So the joke yeah. is that you know one tire is owned by Iceland, one by Canada, one by the U.S., and one by Britain. And if we all collaborate, we have a cool vehicle. Sometimes we're working radio. And if we don't, we each have an efficient unicycle. So that's the, <laughs> that's the ongoing joke. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been really productive. And I think it is a really good way um, not only having a really fun, pleasant career, um, it's much more fun than, than hating everybody and fighting them, um, <laughs> but also really getting things done, and it's been, it's been tons of fun. It's a great network to be a graduate student and uh, early career scholar, and well, the whole, the whole, the whole trajectory. Uh, mm. and it's fantastic because it's just a, it's an amazing network, and uh, it's an amazing network of extremely knowledgeable people and 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 great people. Archaeology often you end up in a small house packed densely in a place, in our case, with a fairly hostile environment for like yeah. a month or two. And, and so it really does create the conditions where you, you where, where, where hopefully a, a, a really lovely cohort develops. And that's what's happened with NABO. It's, it's a very, it's a great group of people. And we sort of form and come apart. And it's, it's very sort of, uh, I suppose, uh, how would you put it? It's informal. But, but there's a lot of uh, kind of extraordinary collaboration that goes on. I think I told you about the Climate History Network um, that I founded with uh, Sam White. Mm-hmm. And we now have a pretty big group, actually, about 200 interdisciplinary scholars. And it'd be great, actually, if you guys could both join. Definitely. Yeah, you're, with pleasure. You're on our list to join. So uh, <laughs> you two can become napalms. I, I would like to, yeah. I, w- yeah, I would love to join, join your group. Yeah, 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 I would yeah. love you we to join. We all join each other's clubs. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> but so, so this is the thing. Like, we've created this network. And we do some things together, but we're thinking about how to move it uh, in a new and more mutually constitutive sort of direction. Mm-hmm. What can we do together? And I think your group has, you know, has given me some very interesting things to think about. Really good foreign experiences apart from field work. Mm-hmm. I mean, archaeologists do grow up smelling each other's socks and running at shoes. Yeah. Who can actually boil water? Who's a really terrible cook? Yeah. Um, you know, these yeah. things. You, you know, things about people that maybe other people don't. Uh, that's a very could be a very bonding experience, but also it's simple work of doing joint 
grant proposals, writing papers together, you know, this kind of scholarly activities where you're you're passing things back and forth and mm-hmm. where you you learn that, you know, there has to be ego free text involved at some point. Everybody has to be edited. Um, that's a good experience and that, that also produces product that you can you can make use of and point to. Um, so there's there's a lot to be said for traditional scholarship, but done as a group. Yeah. So this is sometimes the challenge, I think, because the Climate History Network is still, I think, about 60% historians. Mm-hmm. And the problem with historians is that they tend to avoid writing papers with one another. And this kind of gets at some of the difficulties I think you have with interdisciplinary mm-hmm. scholarship. Now, NABO or NABO is mm-hmm. extremely interdisciplinary, as I understand it. What are some of the challenges to you of doing interdisciplinary work in the Arctic and the subarctic Especially. One challenge about publication, which everybody has to be aware of, is that junior early career scholars need protection. Mm-hmm. Because the good thing about having a massive multi-authored article is everybody gets credit. The bad thing is that sometimes people's contribution can seem to be buried. Yeah. You know, so it's got to be set up so everybody gets a chance at this. And also that the early career scholars who tend to actually do most of the work of these things get a chance to be first authors or second authors or mm. up, the, up their author list there. And we try to do that as much as we possibly can and give people recognition. But it is a challenge, which is recognized internationally, that it's easier to do interdisciplinary research if you're a senior scholar. Yeah. If you've got tenure, you know, because then you can take chances, then you can publish outside your narrow round of of places, Um, then you can be actually creative. The problem is, by the time you get tenure, at least by the time you get my age, your creativity level maybe has plateaued (laughs) some time before, and you really need those bright young people who are early career scholars. So I think a lot of studies have demonstrated how important it is to nurture people and support them and to make sure the departments and other people evaluate them, recognize the, the contributions you're making when you do a multi-author article, for sure. Mm-hmm. There's the difficulty of, of, of you know, every discipline uh, creates a language and people's careers are based on those languages, you know, your fluency in that language. So it really can be a translation problem. Yeah. And, and so, so you have to find... And it takes work, uh, a level where the, where the, where the language is, is translatable, where people can understand each other. And then I suppose, especially for you know, climat- paleoclimatologists have been complaining about this for a long time for good reason, what we would refer to as data raids. You know, when you, when you basically read an article, you pull the data, you use it for your own, and you cite it. You know, you do everything you need to, but, but you, you, I suppose you use the data without talking to the person who generated it. Yeah. And that can lead to great misunderstandings. So really, uh, in my experience, at least so much of it it comes down to being in the same room with the people, usually a number of people, and having to talk physically with each other, which also becomes fun because it means you travel a fair amount and you end out at other places. And We've been lucky. We've been able to do a lot of meetings, and they're really important because you need to be in front of somebody, even if it's to the point where you're seeing someone's face when you're talking about their work, and even if they're being polite, you can tell, all right, step back a sec, you explain it. You know, synthesizing is hard. Uh, I guess, I guess yes. that's the other thing, is just the nature of synthesizing, you do great violence to detail. Hmm. And, and so you are always going to, in a synthetic work, end up probably doing things that will get the specialists, yourself among them, skeptical. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. my experience with synthetic work so far is you have to be willing to to sacrifice a certain level of that detail for, I guess, the recognition of maybe larger patterns. Um, so so it, it, is, it is tough. On the other hand, now that we do work in sort of an interdisciplinary manner, often your own data or anyone's one data in isolation is fine, but 
honestly can sort of seem a little less relevant, a little yeah, small. Definitely. It's, it's once, uh, no, Zoark I think is a great example. You know, we, we, we do come upon certain stories like that Hofstadter story, which which uh, which maybe just in zooarchaeology reveals some really a really great story. But uh, in the absence of other other disciplines collaborating with us, we miss a lot, mm-hmm. and they miss a lot without us. You know, the stories I, I firmly believe the stories are much more relevant and much more interesting when 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 you have those different languages coming together and you do multidisciplinary work and sometimes synthetic work. Yeah. And specialists can sometimes flag up things you can't do with your, yeah. the data set. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes they flag up things you never would have thought of doing with your data yeah. and make it really exciting. I mean, we've had tremendous fun working with volcanic specialists doing TEFRA work. Mm-hmm. And our initial thought was, well, it's for dating, right? And they said, well, yeah, it can do that. And here's the limitations and advantages. But you realize also the amount of soil between events is going to tell you something about erosion, about landscape change which we would never thought of doing. Hmm. And these guys are creating three, basically three-dimensional landscape maps now of the movements of soil across the landscape. And if you put the climate data and then the zooarchaeological data and then, the, let's say, the settlement, settlement pattern data, documentary data on top of that, you can get an incredibly deep, deep picture of, wow. of, of human-environment relations. And this is primarily in Iceland, I guess, right? Yeah. And okay. we're actually trying to do that. I mean, they're they're doing the model, and and in one part of Iceland, for instance, they're doing that. I've been trying to find zooarchaeological data to overlay onto that. Um, so far, unsuccessfully. But one thing about archaeology, which is probably no different than an archive, you go in there looking for something. Sometimes you don't find it. Sometimes you find something completely unexpected. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it takes you for a very long time to find what you're looking for. You know, it's 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 in that sense, it's science. You know, you're sleepwalking part of the time. Wow. Yeah, we're part of a project now. Of course, the well, PESAS project, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. My students know that pronunciation is not necessarily my strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> I've been calling it PESAS for the longest time. Well, you know, there's a certain appeal to that as well. PESAS, like yeah. Because, um, and maybe it's fitting because there are a lot of pieces to it. Mm-hmm. And it has felt like, um, it's felt a little bit strange to be basically the only historian working in that group. And I've got a sense, for our listeners, this is a, a project where we're comparing uh, the deep environmental history of the Pacific and the Atlantic subarctic. This is across, what, 10,000 years, maybe even longer. And uh, uh, Dr. Hambrecht and myself are part of the initiative to sort of trace this environmental history, to build this environmental history over the last, what, 500 years or so. Yeah, 500,000 years. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'll put it back a thousand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's made me think of best practices in interdisciplinary scholarship and some of the difficulties of actually doing this sort of work. And, and one of those difficulties, I feel, is getting a sense of where you might publish. You know, because something that would look very good for me, so now, you know, I'm a tenure track professor, would look very good on my record, might not look good for a scientist and might have completely different expectations. Have you encountered some of these problems as well? Or? Sure. Yeah. I mean, whereas, I mean, in some cases, certain publications where, let's say, people within your disciplinary culture have never even heard of them. Yeah, yeah. But then you look at the impact factors. Yeah. And 
see, impact factors, we don't even really do that in history. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. They're, they're very important for us, which yeah, is nice. Because <laughs> at least, at least then there's sort of a Latin for, 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 oh, well, for sure. which is nice, a standard, you know, so, yeah. which is nice. That helps. I wish we had something. I think one of the things with the, the, the NAVO group has always been that everybody gets a chance to publish wherever they want to. Yeah. Mm. And as often as they want to. Yeah. Oh, that's and if that means we sometimes publish the ah, same story more than once, it's always going to be a little different. Yeah. And I think that's really been important. Uh, I mean, the number of times we published different versions of the North Greenland story, I, I, I have no idea how many. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it's in something like Arctic anthropology, which is great for archaeologists. Sometimes it's in something geological. Mm. Where I don't think my department chair would know if it existed if I didn't give a PDF, <laughs> you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, mean, I think that the, one of the basic things everybody's got to be able to get something for themselves out of this, mm-hmm. and if it's going to work over the long term, everybody has to be happy. Everybody has to feel like it's a good collaboration, and to do that, they all have to get rewards, yeah. mm-hmm. and that means that if a historian needs a single author publication, in which he provides acknowledgments to everybody else. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. In other circumstances, if you're publishing in a more hard science journal where they're used to, you know, a two-pager with a good graph and 20 authors, uh, if that's how you do it, then that's what you do. So it's always a bit of a challenge in, in dealing with the requirements of different disciplines. Uh, I mean, you see this with anthropology where my cultural colleagues, if they're really running hot, will produce a book every five years or so. And the biological anthropologists at their end will produce one of those three pages uh, twice a year, three times a year. Yeah. Archaeologists doing really well will crank out a 20 or 30 page paper every year or so. And, you know, that's that's proactivity. But boy, is that hard to explain to the dean when you're all in the same <laughs> department about, oh, they're all equally productive, but, you know, um, they're measured in different ways. And I yeah. think that's a real challenge of stepping across the science humanities boundaries um, because they will be judged differently. Mm. But everybody's got to get credit for their work. So partly I think we have to educate our masters who judge these things. But I think also everybody's got to make sure that everybody's got a lot of slack to publish when they want to, how they want to, in their own places. There's, there's a great advantage to it. You know, you want to publish in as many disciplinary journals as possible. We have, we're not even talking about things that might be going to non-disciplinary people, to the actual general public, or to policy people, or you know, yeah. all these other audiences that we want to talk to. But for academia, sure. I think I would, I mean, even if it's not very helpful for me in, in some sense, I would love to be on, uh, I, I love being on articles that are going to, disciplines that I'm not technically a member of. I think that's how we talk oh, to me each too. other. Yeah, that's like the holy grail. But as you said, <laughs> you know, then also having the ones that are, that are you know, the money in the bank articles. Yeah. You know. uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing Arctic and subarctic research right now? Linking it to, well, I'd say it's the biggest challenge, but it's also possibly our biggest potential right now. Uh, there are many reasons to value cultural heritage and history mm-hmm. and archaeology, uh, but and this doesn't just apply to the North, this applies to everywhere. But I would say linking what we're doing to contemporary issues, especially around climate change, um, and getting that link into the minds of people who we want to talk to, for instance, the public, mm-hmm. policy makers, funding agencies, um, uh, Trying to, and this is something historians have been doing probably since Herodotus, but trying to get get historical data into the contemporary mind in a way where it's being used yeah. and it's useful and practical and, and and you can materialize it. 
The other problem, which is I suspect you see coming, is that a lot of this information is being destroyed as we speak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, an awful lot of it's going into the sea. A lot of it is being destroyed by rising soil temperatures. And lots of places, especially in Greenland, are facing both happening at once, both coastal sites being washed away horribly rapidly, but also sites miles away from the ocean are being degraded because the soil temperature, which is stayed low enough to preserve things like feathers and hair and DNA and bones, is now rising enough so it's all going to mush. And that's what we've been observing in Greenland just in the last few years. It's a horrifying, rapid, permanent loss <coughs> of this material. So, I mean, it's just as we're getting to the point, as George was saying, where we can reasonably, credibly contribute to global change science research, we're losing our basic record. So as we speak, one of the things which we're trying to do and to organize to do is to try to get more resources, more attention gone at these urgent issues of the loss of the basic record. So the Society for American Archaeology has got a group together now, just formed officially this past few months, and uh, just since June, an organization, uh, I hope, Integrated History and Future of People on Earth, international project, as long as these two groups are have overlapping membership, and we're, we're working ahead to, to try and really get this on the agenda to do all we can to set up new structures to fund rescue, to fund um, saving as much of this record as we possibly can, and also using this as an opportunity to engage the public, you know, both the wider global public, but also the public that lives next to these places that are being washed into the sea, whose past is being destroyed. So I, mean, I think that there's threat and possibility of positive outcome here in both. So I think that over the next few years, certainly this generation has got a huge responsibility to do all they can to save as much as they can, because otherwise it's going to be gone forever. And you're starting to see it, for instance, UNESCO, a lot of the UNESCO organizations are starting to have been talking about this for a long time. At a local level, you're starting to see local organizations like the Scape Trust in Scotland, run by Tom Dawson, a friend of ours at St. Andrews, who are creating these community-level uh, organizations of people who monitor their own cultural heritage and, and, and monitor as it's under threat and as it's being destroyed. And, and through that monitoring, actually creating a way of prioritizing which sites are important, which aren't, not just from an academic point of view, but also from a public point of view. Mm. Here in the States, the National Park Service is putting together a strategy as we speak about how to deal with climate change threats to cultural heritage. That's being run by the, the Climate Change and Cultural Heritage Office of the Park Service, run by Marcy Rockman. Mm. Um, I've been working with her uh, on uh, one end, looking for doing a survey of international efforts, international dialogue, international action, uh, trying to, to grapple with this, this threat to cultural heritage. Because, of course, climate change is threatening many, many things, just human life in many cases. But, mm. but cultural heritage is there, too. And up in the Arctic, it's an extreme issue uh, with erosion, with, as you said, changing soil temperatures, uh, with uh, increased storminess. Um, uh, it, it's a major issue, and it's one that I think a lot of governments and communities are starting to wake up to. So you've been, both of you have been to Greenland. I have not. You have not been to Greenland. Oh, no, of course not. But you've been to Iceland many times. So you've seen firsthand changes over a fairly long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, I can remember... Um, well, another student, uh, Conrad Smirowski, who's done some wonderful work in Greenland and is just now finishing up his PhD on the animal bones, um, 
almost uh, seven or eight years ago now, I sent Conrad off to Greenland telling him it was going to have a great time, animal bones everywhere, because that had been my experience working in the area in the 1970s and doing my doctoral research on animal bones stored in the Zoological Museum of Copenhagen had been excavated in the 1930s to the 1960s, all in great condition. When I visited the eastern settlement where Conrad wanted doing his work in, in the south in the 1980s, just as a tour guide, um, I was able to sort of, you know, jump down the old excavation units, which were left open. You could see sticking out of the walls of the excavation unit was hair and feathers and bits of cloth, wow. beautifully preserved. So sent the Conrad back, so you get tons of material. What turns out is it's all gone to mush just since then, since the 1980s. And of the hundred-some sites which they have surveyed uh, since then, they've got like three that still have excellent organic preservation just by the chance of the individual site. And probably two decades ago, they would have had a hit on probably every site. So that's the scale of the structure we're talking about. And we're, we're way behind already trying to save things. So there's a huge urgency. I mean, fortunately, this summer we have some NSF money to send Conrad and Christian Madsen and his colleagues back to uh, Greenland to do some more work, but we are so far behind the eight ball, it is, it is frightening. And this is the case all across the North. So we are seeing a horrific loss of information, which is happening you know, as we speak, pretty much, and it's a case where we, we have huge urgency here. So yeah, in, in one person's lifetime, you can see huge changes, and in you guys' lifetime, you're, if we don't do anything, it's going to be gone. Yeah. yeah, I guess one way to look at it is is, is archaeological sites and cultural heritage are, are worth are, 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 are valuable in and of themselves. Of course, you know it's, it's our shared historical inheritance as humans. But another way to, that we've been looking at it is that there's incredible data stored in these places, data that could be useful for dealing with climate change, behavioral data, mm. examples of other societies dealing with climate change. How do they deal with it? Were they successful? Were they unsuccessful? Um, are there any lessons we can learn from that? Uh, there's incredibly good natural resource data that we can get out of here using stable isotopes, using genetics. We can, we can push back population data for important species like, say, Atlantic cod back a thousand years instead of the 100, maybe 150 years that we have through fisheries data. You can, your idea of what's normal, I think, is going to change if you're looking at a thousand years of data yeah. versus 100, 150 years of data. Finally, there's paleogenetics. There's, there's a huge amount of genetic information in these archaeological sites that can be useful for, again, paleo uh, demographics. Also possibly useful for recovering lost genetic variation that could be reintroduced into species to make them uh, more, more resilient. So there's a huge range of, of, of valuable material in these sites. So we don't need to just save them because maybe George Washington slept there. You know, we, we, need, we need to. We, that, that is one very good reason. But we also there's, there's I think, a, a numerous other reasons that I, I suspect the public isn't as aware of because we weren't even that aware of it. Yeah. Technology yeah. Is, is 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 opened up so many new avenues for for valuable data that can come out of these sites. Just in the last five years, not to mention the last decade or so. Exactly. It's uh -huh. completely changed. I mean, there's, there's valuable, valuable data in there, and we're losing it. The, the illusion that, well... Yeah, our, our stock phrase now is we have the Library of Alexandria in the ground all over the world, but it's on fire. Wow. Well, now, <laughs> uh, speaking of maybe harvesting as many books from that library as possible, can you just briefly describe for me in the limited time that we have the projects that you're both working on right now? Maybe, maybe the most exciting project that you're working on right now. Well, George is the principal investigator for something we call the Comparative Island Ecodynamics Project, which has been specifically looking at Greenland and Iceland um, as what happened. You know, two closely related societies. One dies in the Middle Ages, one survives. Um, so that's 
that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, and that's that's a fantastic one. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and and but I might be the PI, but I'm the, it's, again, it, there's a lot of people working on this across the North Atlantic. Uh, for me, I'd say the most exciting thing I'm working on right now is this is a project that is investigating genetic variability in the historical record, looking to see how it changes in the historical record in domestic animals, with the possibility of recovering interesting and useful variation for the possible reintroduction in modern-day modern, modern day, uh, animals. Wow. This is, again, something I don't even know was possible until a year ago. And it might, it's, it's possible-ish, let's put it that way, and it will be possible soon. Wow. Actually, no, it's possible now. <laughs> but, but, but it's a very, very recent, recent, uh, it, it's a whole new world for, for archaeology, I think. And it's, so that, that one for me is one of the most interesting, possibly scary, but also very, very interesting uh, projects I'm part of right now. Amazing. Well, Professor McGovern and Professor Hambrecht, thank you so much for joining me again. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing more about your research and working with you in the future.